Good day, everyone, and welcome to the Bread of Life radio ministry. This is a program brought to you by the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho, and the Overseas Church Planting Ministry, Church Partnership Evangelism. If you or your church would like to explore how we might work with you to bring the gospel and plant churches around the world, you can go to traincpe.org or breadoflifeboise.org. There you'll find contact information on how to reach us. I'd love to hear from you. Today we continue our study into one of the most important sections in our Bible, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. And now we take time to consider a word you may have never heard before. It's the word propitiation. It's a big word with big ramifications for our salvation. Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 1. I'm not asking you to do that, but if you do, you'll see that there you have a declaration of the creative handiwork of God in which He created all things, and He made everything. And as you read it, what you come away clearly understanding is that God made everything by fiat. That is, God just spoke, and it was. And so you'll read as you're going through it, God said, God said, God said, God said. Each day God made a declaration, God spoke, and those things that came into being came into being by His spoken words demonstration of his absolute power, his creative power over all things and over all creation. Now we're coming to a different situation altogether. We're coming to God's work or how God brought about our salvation. How it was that God took individuals who had sinned against him, had been cast under the cloud of their own unrighteousness, and how God made them righteous, righteous so that they were fit to come back into God's presence and dwell in God's presence. That is, by the way, the problem of salvation that needed to be solved. How could sinful, unrighteous individuals like us ever be restored into the presence of the righteous, holy God? That was the problem that he solved in our salvation. God worked it out in such a way that he might be able to declare us righteous, that he could cover us by our faith in Jesus Christ with his own perfect righteousness so that we could be fit to be with him now and be with him forever, and that's what we've been talking about over the last few weeks. Now the question is, how did God accomplish that? Did he accomplish that in the same way that he created all things? Did God just by fiat say, be justified, be righteous, and we were justified and righteous? Interestingly enough, the challenge or the problem of our sin was far greater in God's mind than the challenge of creation. And in this case, God couldn't and God didn't just say something. God had to engage in a work that took place, a work that would satisfy his own justice and change our corrupt and sinful natures. And so it wasn't established by fiat. It wasn't that God spoke. Our salvation demanded something more from God. It called for a work, a mysterious and terrible work that we identify in the cross of Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 24, and you'll see in the very first part of verse 24 that our salvation is declared. The nature or the very essence of the problem that was solved in making us righteous. It says, we were justified freely by His grace. That is, there is problem solved. We were made righteous by the grace that came through God and through our faith in Jesus Christ. And this justification not only brought forgiveness of all of our sins, 
This justification not only took away all of the writing of all the sentence of all the evil that we had done and wiped the slate clean, but this salvation then wrote down upon our lives all of the goodness, all of the righteousness, all the perfections of Jesus Christ. So that when God looks at us, he sees us not with our sins, not with the writing of our past history of sins, but he sees written all over us the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ so that we could come into his presence. That's salvation. That's what God has accomplished for us. That's what's declared in that short little phrase, being justified freely by the grace that is in God. But now, if you look at the last half of that verse, or the first half of verse 25, you'll see what it was that God had to accomplish or do in order to bring that salvation to us. There was a problem that he had to solve on our part. There was something that needed to take place on our part because of our sin, you'll see that addressed in verse 24b. And then there's something that God had to address on his part, something that had to be satisfied on God's part in order that he might bring to us this salvation. And so we need to look at this. This is the saving work of God addresses two parties, man and his sin, God and his righteousness, God and his holiness, God and his complete justice with two different needs. Man must have his sin addressed. God must have his justice satisfied his holiness satisfied. And these two things must take place in order for us to be justified freely by the grace of God. So the salvation that God brings to us is free. It pours out from his grace. But as we read and understand, it's costly. It costs something of God in order to accomplish that salvation for us. The first thing was man's need in salvation had to be addressed. And that was addressed in the redeeming work of the cross. It says through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We spoke about this last week. Our sins and through our sins and by our sins, we have sold ourselves in slavery to sin. Into that slavery, we've also been bound by the tempter who led us into that sin. We live bound under his domain and his dominion and under the domain and dominion of sin. And as a result, we are simply being held in sin until we experience or reap the full consequences of our sin, which is death. We gave some different examples of that. It's like the slave that was chained in the belly of a boat and was simply used as an oarsman to transport the vessels of some foe around the Mediterranean Sea as he engaged in battle and warfare. And there he was chained, and there he was fed, and there he slept. He never left that place until eventually that ship lost one of its battles. It sunk into the water and he sunk down with it. There it is. There's a picture of us and... Christ has come and redeemed us out of that slavery by taking our place and setting us free, redeeming us by his own life, through his own precious blood. He's redeemed us. We're told that in 1 Peter. We gave a different illustration. It would be like being in a foxhole in a war, and all of a sudden a grenade falls into the foxhole, and there's a number of you there, and one of the soldiers falls upon that grenade and takes the complete blow of it. And in a sense, he's bought your life for you. He's redeemed you in that moment. So Christ has, in a sense, fallen upon and taken all the shrapnel of our sin upon himself and given his life in order that we might go on living and be free. And, and yet, if we're an individual who simply gave his life for us, the very next day we might be afraid that another grenade might be thrown up in the next foxhole that we're in, in the next situation. But in Christ, he rose from the grave and he not only redeemed us from our sins and gave us this new life, but then he drew us up into his eternal and everlasting life so that we might have, in this passage it says, we have redemption in Christ. 
We live in him and we abide in him and he sustains us and he holds us and he keeps us and what he accomplished for us and paying and bearing our sins in our place. And so in the first letter to the Corinthians, Paul writes that Christ is made unto us redemption. It's Christ himself and being in him that brings to us this great and wonderful redemption. And it's wonderful. And it provides for this great need of us that our sins and the damage of our sins and the destruction and the death that our sins cause and set in motion our life and the slavery and bondage that our sin brings to us, that we might be released from all of that. And, and God accomplished that by sending Jesus Christ to be our Redeemer. But then there's a need on God's part that we're going to talk about this morning. God's need in order to bring sinful people into his salvation. And what God needs is, and it sounds odd to speak of God in this way, but God needs to be propitiated. His justice against sin, his wrath against sin, his hatred for sin must be answered and addressed. That's the idea here. To propitiate means essentially to placate or appease the anger or animosity of an individual. Now we're going to talk about this over next week as well because we're going to look at some other interpretations or translations of what it means here to propitiate. But here is the basic idea, and this is the idea that the authors of the authorized version of Scripture, the King James, gave us and understood, and you'll find this in other translations as well. It's this idea. It's taken from a Greek word, halasterion, which means basically to propitiate. There are many people that don't like this idea. They don't like this idea or this connotation being applied to God. They don't like it for a number of reasons. One, they think that it's not reflective of the God that's revealed to us in the New Testament. This God is an enlightened God, and He's a God of love, and He's not a God of scorn, He's not a God of revenge, and He's not a God of anger, and therefore He doesn't need to be placated. They don't like it because they don't think it's a New Testament idea or a biblical idea. Second, they don't like it because it sounds to them quite primitive. Some tit-for-tat civilization that existed at different times in the history of the world, but we're more modern, and we have evolved beyond those things, and we're not individuals who go out seeking to take revenge. So it's a reflection of a primitive mindset that doesn't exist in modern, enlightened minds of our day and age, and they find it quite offensive, and it's the kind of notion that might trigger a person to think that God is angry and that God somehow needs to be placated in his anger, and this they identify as something that's inappropriate. And, and again, they're against it because they think that the very idea applies to the image of some angry, tribal, pagan god who has to be placated with sacrifices of others in order to release his blessings because he woke up in a foul mood one day and he demanded some kind of satisfaction from the people in order that he might release his blessings upon them and avert the curses that he set upon their land or the challenge that they're facing on their land. And the fact is that you can go into different civilizations and go into different cultures and that's exactly how their gods behave. We have a pastor that we work with, and you've heard me speak about Moses Undru on a number of occasions. Moses is not the first person who came to Christ, I should say, in his family. It was his mother, and then it was his father. His father's name is Mohan. He was pledged to be married to Moses' mother. It had been arranged many years prior to that when they were young children. Her family moved and went to Myanmar for a short period of time, and while they were in Myanmar, they converted from Hinduism to Christianity, and they came back as a Christian family, but the wedding was still on. And so he married this gal who was now claiming to be a Christian girl. He knew nothing about it. Not only that, she had such a rudimentary faith, 
she had no way to explain it to him. She couldn't explain Christianity to him at all, but she could pray for him. And so he would hear her praying to her God, and she would be praying, Oh God, save my husband. Oh God, be merciful and save my husband. What does that mean? What did it mean that this God, and how would that God save him? He didn't know. He didn't understand. In the village where they lived and where Mohan grew up and now where he has a church and a ministry and where Moses now serves as well, in the village of Megatopali at that time, there was a dominant God who ruled that city by the name of Polarama. And every time that there was a deprivation upon the land or any time, well, it actually was kind of capricious, but at various times the priestess who represented Polarama would go through the village and cry out to all the neighbors, Polarama demands blood. Polarama wants blood. And on those occasions, it would decide what type of sacrifice Polarama wanted, whether it was a chicken or a bird, or whether it was a goat, or whether it was a, a cow. And they would bring it to the place where Polarama was supposed to be residing, which was this large banyan tree. And there underneath this banyan tree that Polarama resided in, they would sacrifice an animal and pour out the blood upon the roots of that tree, because Polarama demands blood. And it was the only way that they would avert whatever tensions or whatever trial or whatever terrible thing was coming upon them or had come upon them was to feed blood to this angry god, Polarama. Now that's, that's the type of idea and the type of thing that individuals instinctively resist when you think of the idea of God wanting to be propitiated or placated. You'll have to join us in our next couple of broadcasts as we address these protests against the idea of propitiation, and we extract it from pagan notions and restore it into a biblical context. Also, eventually, we'll get to finish this account of my friend in India. Thanks for joining us today at The Bread of Life. We're a ministry of church partnership evangelism and The Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. To learn more or to find archives of these and other messages, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, as we gather around the table and feast on God's Word together, may God bless you.